0: Thanks for joining us. I'm Steve Hsu. And I'm Corey
1: Washington, and we're your hosts
0: for Manifold.
1: Our guest today is Professor Claude Steele. Claude is the Lucy Stern Professor in the Social Sciences Emeritus at Stanford University. Previously, he has been the Dean of the Stanford School of Education, the Provost at Columbia University, and the Executive Vice Chancellor and Provost at the University of California at Berkeley. He's the author of numerous articles on the topics of addictive behaviors and self-affirmation, but is best known for his work on the influence of stereotypes on minority student performance in higher education. He's the author of the 2010 book, Whistling Vivaldi and Other Clues to How Stereotypes Affect Us. He's a member of the National Academy of Sciences and the board of directors of the MacArthur Foundation. Claude has received honorary degrees from the University of Chicago Yale, Princeton, the University of Michigan, and the University of Maryland, Baltimore. Welcome to Manifold, Claude.
2: Great to be here.
1: You and I have a common friend, Ed Gordon, which is how you came to be on our show. Yeah. And I asked Ed to reach out to you, and uh, graciously you agreed. I know this is a little bit of a digression, but I think Ed Gordon is one of the most remarkable people of the past century in higher education. He's 98 years old right now. His doctor recently informed him that he probably had about 10 more years to live. And this encouraged Ed to start writing an NSF grant. I describe him as the grandfather research on minority student education. I know him through my father, but probably less well than you did. Can you just remind our listeners who Ed Gordon is and how you came to know him? Yeah, I we, we've never worked
2: together, but I've always known of him and uh, thought of him just as you've described him as sort of the father of this uh, area of research, uh, minority education and the like, and, and an, a, a, a contemporary of Kenneth Clark's. Uh, and so a co-conspirator, a fellow traveler with all that work and the development of those ideas and, and you know, they've just had such foundational uh, impact on how we think about these issues. Uh, and then he's worked at ETS for many years. He's, uh, you know, he has had a career at Yale. He's had a career at the city. College of uh, of New York. So he has popped up and contributed in a million ways. But one of the things that was most impressive this summer, he came to California and he gathered a group of uh, people together at the home of Linda Darling Hammond, uh, another well uh, a famous uh, educator. Uh, and he gave us a lecture at the age of 98 that I thought was the most... <laughs> One of the most insightful things I've heard in a long time, so if his doctor gives him another 10 years, <laughs> we've got a lot of, of good things coming our way. So he, he's, he's amazing, and a, a, a man who's lived a lot of history and you know made incomparable contributions.
1: He gave a speech at my father's retirement party about three years ago, and um, I think at the party he was the only person older than my father. And probably older than anyone else there by 20 years. But again, really phenomenal speech. And what I really enjoyed talking to Ed about, and this is something I think I've really come to appreciate as I've gotten older, is when you meet people who have lived that long, the kind of perspective you get is really kind of astonishing because Ed has really clear memories of, of Harlem, where he lived in the 1940s and 50s. And I remember discussing with him how times in New York had changed over these years and as the place uh, desegregated, the effects it had on the neighborhoods. And it's just something I think people have forgotten over this long course of history, the effects of these uh, important social policies. Our topic for today is your recent article in the Chronicle of Higher Education, Why Campuses Are So Tense, Identity, Stereotypes, and the Fraying of the College Experience. But I want to, again, begin by going back to those sort of tumultuous periods uh, that led up to your entry into higher ed in the late sixties and some of the issues that really motivated you to carry out your studies. So your biography says that your parents were very politically active and took you and your brother to protest during the sixties and your interested in politics uh, but began to really want to try to understand how these forces affected people in a scientific way. Is that accurate?
2: Yeah, I, I think it, you know that's that's a narrative built through retrospect, <laughs> not so much uh, at the time it it was happening. It it just seemed like ordinary life to to me. But but in in retrospect, we we you know I did come from a family that was politically active in the civil rights uh, movement, and uh, throughout their their. Adult lives, and then you know we sort of inherited that perspective, and and those were just the, that was just the tenor of the times. There was a change in the air. We were moving out of a Jim Crow world into uh, an ostensibly to be integrated world, and uh, there was excitement and anxiety, pressure. I mean, it was a uh, an intense. Time there was also the Vietnam War going on. There was a draft in which people were vulnerable to be pulling pulled into it. So all these things I think energized that that moment and made politics relevant to everybody. You couldn't go anywhere without you know uh, talking about uh, these things and racial politics, maybe in particular racial politics, and then eventually the the war and and uh, our role as a nation in the war.
1: So your Wikipedia bio describes you as an intense reader of fiction also, and that this got you interested in trying to understand how individuals see the social world. I've had a lot of discussions with many of my scientifically-oriented friends who want to say that you really shouldn't believe anything unless it's in a scientific study. And My response is that the vast majority of what we know about the world actually isn't from science. It's from human observation, and there are great and deep truths that come from fiction. Uh, that don't come from uh, randomized controlled trials or experiments. First of all, is it correct that you were partly led into science through fiction?
2: I, I think there, again, in retrospect, that it was a you know a road in. I I read uh, as a as a kid voraciously a lot of fiction, and uh, you know you're you're kind of looking for your your place in the world through that through that kind of thing. I think that social psychology and fiction are, have a lot in common, where, where you're trying to deal with how the individual interfaces with their social world, their social context, and the, the problems and the challenges and the opportunities that it presents. And, and as you just pointed out, if, if, you, if you want a holistic appreciation of, of that uh, aspect of our lives, fiction is a good, a good avenue to it. So I have a great appreciation for fiction. I, I think as a, as a scientist, I have, I have a great appreciation uh, uh, for it. It's, it's, it's to this day a, a source of insight for me, and not to speak of enjoyment much, much of the time, but uh, the, the activity of, of uh, writing a novel and the activity of designing a social psychology research program are probably not that. You're sort of at the same level of analysis. Of human experience when you're doing both of those things, so there's a lot in common there.
1: You know, personally, I have to say I think I've probably learned a lot more about human beings from novels than almost any other source. Uh, Tolstoy has been really a incredible well of insights. Uh, not to say uh, you know Ralph Ellison also hugely influential. I know Steve's also a big fan of uh, certain kinds of fiction.
0: Yeah, but you know I can't resist Corey since you're a philosopher. You've you've raised a difficult problem in epistemology. So you're saying you know things but not through the scientific method. So I not to de- not to derail this conversation, but I can't resist asking you what do you mean by you know things? C- certainly novelists have to be they have to have a deep insight into the world to construct a realistic and interesting fictional world that you inhabit and they have deep psychological insights into people, but in terms of uh I don't know, knowledge or or facts about the world, what what is it that that you can learn about the world without performing some kind of experiment to validate it.
1: You know, that's interesting. I, I was having this thought recently, uh, you know, I know a fair number of things about my father. I don't think I've ever performed any experiments on him. But some I, but some factual things it. you
0: just observed, right? So you that's know your right. father was tall or you know your father was short.
1: So through fiction what I get is essentially a hypothesis from the author about how human beings work. and then. That leads me to then make observations in the world. It kind of directs my attention. I guess in that sense, it's led me to have the kind of expertise that I have with my father. And my family to lead to knowledge about them. So I wouldn't say I take it purely based on the basis of what I read in fiction, but it then leads me in a certain path. Uh, as Klavif said, it, you know, it, it may it may lead you toward an experiment, something you really want to investigate further.
0: Yes, I mean, so for example, like. Uh when they sketch a character really deeply, then you feel like you've actually known that character even though it's fictional A person didn't really exist. But if they make some social observation, like if you do X to a group of people, then Y will happen, they could be right or they could be wrong actually about that. And then maybe it motivates you to do the social psychology <laughs> experiment to see was the novelist actually right when, when he or she said that?
1: You know, Claude, I don't want to have us <laughs> Yeah, we should so, do but, but,
0: but let me remind you, th-
1: this did happen very recently, and it remind me how difficult it is to write across. I, I hate the term, but well, not the hate the term. I think it's difficult. But identity lines. I was reading a f- female novelist description of a male character, yes, and she was describing this thought process, of kind of continually going over your emotional experiences. My thought was, I, I don't do don't, that. I don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this is something I want to get with Claude. We're, we're talking about stereotypes, but over the course of my life, I had various white people, for want of a better word, assume that I was more like them than I was. So. I've been called an Oreo at various times by white people, never by black people. So there's a kind of projection. They assume that I'm a lot more like them. And I'm like, I have to say, look, I try I've to be Never been called an Oreo by a black person? Never. Wow. Never. Okay. You know. And I'd explain to them, look, you know, you, you know, I think you're projecting quite a lot. Uh, there's a there's a phrase that Bruce Springsteen has that I really like. He says, "Over the course of your life, it's always of course about a car. People get into the car over time, and nobody gets out of the car." So these early experiences are really formative to you, and as you as you kind of rise through the hierarchy of life and you know become provost uh, at Columbia or executive vice chancellor at Berkeley, your early experiences have an enormous effect, and they don't leave you. And sure. people project an image on you as if you're like this person with no connection to your background. And that's just not true. The experience you have as a kid, you know, being called the N word, being treated a certain way, that's with you, and that you know that doesn't go away. And I mean that's something that people at least my experts, white people have not realized in dealing with me over time.
0: Yes. So I, I, Well, I can't resist asking this question because I mean, I'm an ethnic minority but a different ethnic minority than you guys, and I think that Asian Americans, while they have their own challenges, the challenges are not nearly as strong as what African Americans face in society. So I actually feel like I can't really feel what it's like, even having read Ralph Ellison and all this other stuff, I still can't really get a sense. Of what it's like to be walking down the street in East Lansing, and some guy could drive. You told me the other day some guy drove by and yelled the N word at you. It Doesn't really happen to me, so I and and what they yell at me is a little bit less charged, right? So I, I just feel like there's a, there is some kind of gap. Like I cannot bridge that gap, right? Maybe if I did some science experiment where I wore a hologram of you for a week or something, but uh, not currently possible. I would say, what do you think?
1: To so give you some background, Claude, uh, you know this is the first time in honestly close to thirty years. I think the, the last time I was called the N-word was on a platform, a BART platform in the early nineties, by a Latino guy, um, and uh, <laughs> um, it's it's quite interesting. You know, it, it, the previous time before that was actually in Morocco, but a guy more or less the same color skin color as me when I did not accept his offer to be a guy, and he called me the N-word and a Jew. But yeah, riding my bicycle down the main drag here in Lansing, Michigan, someone yelled the N-word at me. Anyway, this is let's start to get back, but at least I'd like to hear your thoughts on Steve's view about
0: Yeah. How how different do you th- I mean, I I think probably there is a, a, a difficult to bridge gap psychologically. Even though I'm minor ethnic minority, for me to appreciate what it's like to be African-American is pretty tough. Do you, do you, do you feel that that's true? or?
2: yeah i mean i i I do think that there's probably something in your experience that would by through analogy give you some insight into the experience of african americans because every group every person uh there are negative stereotypes about them for sure Uh, when you're in a situation that's very important to you that stereotype you could be judged in terms of it you can feel that pressure I think, for example, white people, they're a form of stereotype threat that they feel that's, that has an intense and often unspoken uh, impact on their experience is the stereotype threat of being seen as racist. You know, they make a, they make a misstatement or uh, flub a name or something, and, and their, their worry is that they're going to be seen in terms of that stereotype about white people as racist. And that, that can be quite profound. And yet it can give them some insight into the stereotype threat that African-Americans are going to experience as, as being seen as possibly less qualified, less smart, less able to, to um, you know, contribute to society in important ways. And, and so I think by analogy, uh, that's one thing I appreciate about the framework of a of stereotype threat is that everybody has that, some form of it, older people you know, being something (laughs) I can resonate to, (laughs) Uh, are seen in certain terms of, can be seen in terms of stereotypes and situations that are very important to them (laughs) and can feel that pressure. Uh, And that can give you some sense of what, of what that pressure is like in, in
0: in the instance of race, Corey and I are very paranoid about being mistaken for boomers because we're we're Gen X. We're not boomers. We're, so yeah. we're, we're
1: like we're like we're like, we're like one year under the cutoff.
0: Yeah. No, well, I'm a few years. He's over. Good.
1: I, I'm yeah. just, I, I, you.
0: I have the distinction
2: of being born on the first day of the baby boom,
0: <laughs> January first,
2: nineteen forty six.
0: Yeah. So you're you're an old boomer, like we're old Xers. I can't.
2: Yeah. I can't. I can't evade that one. And, it's, and it has accumulated a lot of negative stereotypes in the last couple of years. So,
1: so you mentioned stereotypes leads us into your article, and you interestingly discuss uh, a stereotype threat faced by both yourself that you faced when you entered uh, school and by a young white student uh, that you met recently. So can you talk a little bit about that and why you chose those two to contrast?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. I and what we were just talking about, I think, was was the motive behind picking those two examples to open the article with. Is that I wanted to right away make make it clear that indeed race is an identity in the United States in America that has some very strong negative stereotypes and some very and big consequences tied to them. And I thought that personal story about uh, coming to graduate school and and uh, seeing the excitement that people had about arthur jensen and his hypothesis that my my people <laughs> were genetically inferior intellectual intellectually and that, that because it was seen as science we were expected to take that seriously and it 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 gave me a question uh, that it didn't give my white friends and colleagues which was am I, as a scientist am i supposed to be open to this really dark possibility that me my race my family are is that what's involved in being a science? Can I can I trust a science like that? And, and so I, I wanted to convey in that brief example what it's like to be sort of under the spotlight of a negative stereotype, racial stereotype. But I also wanted to make sure the reader knows that uh, the scope of the article and the arguments in it uh, include the, the stereotype threat that whites feel. Uh, so, so that was a very vivid, uh, I tried to make it, Uh, tried to get a very vivid example of a white student in an an African-American political science class uh, that was populated primarily by by African-American students. How would that student feel, this white student in the face of all these blacks talking about, um, you know, touchy, tough issues, uh, violence in the post-Civil War South and the the sort of subjugation of African-Americans in American life. Uh, How would a white person feel in the middle of that discussion well they're going to feel a, an intense form of stereotype threat and and the larger argument is that our history has given us these these roles assigned us these roles black white and has constructed stereotypes about them that we have to contend with and that when we come together in a institution like um, institution of higher education that's that's part of what the challenge is 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 to uh, develop an approach to education a pedagogy that that enables people under both of these forms of pressure to succeed learn prosper thrive in this in in this situation and that that for me was a way of characterizing what uh the, a challenge of integrated life is in in the united states that that we're doing some of we're doing a, a something that i think is kind of amazing in human history which is we're we're having a society in which we want everybody to be able to come together and benefit from our institutions, their opportunities to make contributions and, uh, and the like. And we've been a little bit unrealistic about what the nature of that challenge is. And so that article is, is trying to bring that into
0: view. So coming back to Corey's observation that maybe what you read about in a novel might inspire a social psychology experiment, I'm curious, having gone through what you had to go through at Ohio State with Jensen, I guess, visiting your campus, did that... Experience then inspire you to actually ask, "Oh, can we measure the negative impact of being worried about a negative stereotype about yourself?" Is that is that kind? Did that actually kind of inspire the actual experiments that you did?
2: Uh, maybe the well, the quickest answer is no, because <laughs> uh, that experience, which I offer as just one of many, as Corey was just describing, he just went through something similar <laughs> in recent history. These experiences continue to. Tied to your identity, so so no. At that at that point, I I, I admit I didn't have a, an intellectual grasp of of it. It was just a, a an upsetting kind of threatening thing, and I and you, you, I tried to contend with it as best I I could. I tried to finish the article with the with the hopeful uh, outcome that uh, of, of of some general strategies that I I think a lot of people experience. Some general strategies that. Help you deal with that kind of pressure, uh, but at the, at the time, I, I I didn't have any coherent articulation of <laughs> of something like stereotype threat—a concept like that. That was that was twenty five years down the road.
0: But later on, when you were designing the experiment, were you able to introspect and say, "Hey, you know, sometimes I probably had to get over." Right, this 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 fear of what how the other people were stereotyping me in order to perform, and maybe I could measure that directly in this experiment. Was, was that sort of your thought process in designing? It's
2: interesting because I think this is a a, a, po- a point about the nature of science. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I did the 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 uh, that r- research on stereotype threat came from trying to explain this mysterious underperformance problem where you have. Uh, let's say black kids and white kids, they're equally prepared, same prior grades and, and so on. Yet, at some subsequent level of schooling, black kids are getting lower grades. So why would that be happening? Because they've got the same preparation. If you told me there was a difference in preparation, of course, I'd understand that. You know, the, the, the schools that African-American kids uh, get to go to in this country generally uh, are not as strong as, as schools that uh, uh, certainly middle class, upper class uh, white families have available to them. So if you get a difference in, in performance at college, uh, it wouldn't be surprising. But when you've got kids coming from the same kind of backgrounds with the same preparation, and you still get this underperformance, well, where, where, where does that come from? So we just started out with a problem to, try, to understand. And over, I would say, five or six years, really, trying this experiment, trying that, looking, you know, using archival data, Reading novels, <laughs> everything. Uh, we kept getting this effect that when they, when uh, the stereotype was could 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 be relevant to, to, to for example, taking a test, uh, African American students uh, perform worse than if you could give them that same test but make the stereotype about their group's abilities irrelevant to it by you know representing the test as not a test of intelligence, for example. Uh, as soon as you did that, the same test but African-Americans' performance went up a uh, uh, higher. And so it, it pre- that idea, that phenomenon of stereotype it presented itself to us. And, and we wrangled with how to describe it and interpret it and, and, and so on. I want to say the rest is history, but it really presented us to us. And I think that is how a lot of, of uh, certainly in my experience, my more important ideas have come that way. You get a problem, you try to understand it, and in understanding it, you come up with something you, you couldn't have thought of uh, on your own.
0: Do you, do you mind if I ask a little bit more? I'm just really fascinated by the, the specific research topic. So I had a college roommate who's African-American, and we went to Caltech, which doesn't have affirmative action. And so he, in fact, his father and mother, his, I think his father and mother went to Morehouse and Spelman, and uh-huh. they wanted him to go to Caltech because there would be no stigma uh, because if he made it at Caltech, everyone would know he made it at Caltech. One question I have is if is the is the stereotype threat alleviated for kids who go to like a historically black college? Like, uh, do you do you manage to get yeah. into an environment where you're not worried about it? And do those kids actually perform better, controlled for test scores and stuff like that, because of that?
2: Well, it it is. There's a big fact fat fact out there, which is that. For African Americans who get into the uh, STEM fields, professional at a professional level, doctors, scientists, the vast majority of them come from uh, the small number of historically black colleges yes. and universities. And the same is true for women in in uh, STEM fields. They, the the majority of them still come from uh, single sex colleges and universities. So there, there there's a big piece of evidence that I think reflects something like this that there. In those environments, they're less, uh, they're less likely to worry that they're going to be seen in terms of a racial stereotype or a gender stereotype, because everybody's like that. Uh, whereas at Caltech, I, I'm not sure what you're going to tell me happened in that story, but I'll predict, I'll predict that uh, there's going to be, even though there isn't affirmative action... You know, there's probably considerable worry that you know I I could be seen if I make a if I screw up here I could be seen in terms of that stereotype or or confirm that stereotype. There's I no
0: can, there's no question that I I'm sure I mean he and I are good friends and uh, to this day so there's no question that there's extra pressure. But uh, no, he was under tremendous pressure to represent. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, but luckily he's quite a talented guy, so he didn't have a problem with it. He was a hard worker too, but he was under that pressure now. But I still think he felt that. Having gone to a school that didn't practice affirmative action for the rest of his life, for the people who knew, they would realize that you know, okay, he he didn't have that additional stigma, maybe that some people have to deal with. And I think he that was actually strategic on the part of him and his family in choosing the school. Wow, uh, interesting. I, yeah. I
1: think, but that that kind of assumes that people know Caltech
0: does right, not it, practice right, affirmative action. Exactly. So it's and, a small that, community that would know that,
1: and, and that they judge people. Uh, more harshly go to schools that they know practice affirmative action. I'm not sure that both of, either of those things is actually true.
0: Yeah, I, I I agree with you. I don't think that many people know anything about Caltech. It's a totally obscure, tiny school, right? So that strategy may not have been a great strategy, but his father was a, is a chemistry professor, so maybe they were viewing things from a very narrow academic lens when they chose the school.
2: Well, you, the UCs don't use affirmative action, for example. Uh, the University of California, those 10 campuses, that's 285,000 students. Uh, and you still get considerable underperformance, right That's the name for the phenomenon, mm-hmm. having the same credentials, yet not performing as well. You still get you still get that in a um, in in a huge system that doesn't by law uh, isn't able to use affirmative action.
1: you know it's interesting. Uh, think about your experiments and the interventions that they suggest, uh, and maybe you can elaborate on these, but where you, tell a student they're not being judged on the basis of their intelligence, and you uh, suggest that in their feedback studies, uh, they're high high standards. These strike me as very early versions of the nudge approach to changing social reality. You give a small intervention that has a disproportionate effect. But on the other side, going to an all-black school or an all-female school is a large social intervention, so it seems like it's actually pretty complicated what's required to change this kind of underperformance you know it's it seems like you may have to have interventions across the entire magnitude
0: but i think a lot of the nudge stuff doesn't replicate that's the thing so that it's more plausible to me that yeah going to spellman or going to wellesley really does substantially alleviate some of the pressures whereas a, a small nudge might not fix what could be a very pervasive effect
2: well yeah nudges usually are aimed at changing the 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 student's mindset to some degree their narrative about what the situation they're in and i think it does generally uh pay off and replicate that if you can create a a realistic but hopeful narrative in the in the student's mind about the, the situation they're in the school they're in and how people feel about them and so on uh you can have some some gains you can produce some gains I, I wouldn't argue that they're always as a big effect as going to a single-sex college or something. That that's where you got the whole context um, uh, different. But I, I think this, all these things, are kind of around this fundamental American challenge: is that in the, in the mid '60s, we we sort of thought you just open the door to these institutions, and everything'd be fine. But uh, with 50 years of, of looking back at things, you see the, the significant impact of these subtle things like stereotypes and the way people are treated and, and the way some of our general pedagogies, uh, the way we teach people and the way we organize higher education, how those affect people differently.
1: You know, I, uh, Steve and I, we started uh, college in the uh, early 80s. And I think this was still at the time of the kind of heightened idea of, yeah, your identity didn't matter. We're just going to school to learn about timeless truths. And to a large extent I still buy into that. Maybe I'm a, a little old fashioned, but I just do distinctly remember going to classrooms and as you say, seeing, you know, these series of white guys up on the wall who are our famous great scientists. You know, I can understand that kids may have doubts about their own place in that system when they see these people don't look like them. My perspective at the time was all right, none of those guys look like me, but I want to be one of them. You know, I'm just going to work hard enough to become one <laughs> of them. Um, and I think maybe this is a I maybe mean, I was sort of a paradigm, perhaps naive uh, entrant into this idea of, ident- of identity-free assimilation. But it seems that things have changed a fair amount. And I, I can't say it's bad that they changed. There's definitely a lot of cognitive dis- cognitive dissonance in me going through college. There's a lot of discomfort. You know, there's clumsy racial things that happened, and a lot of simple lack of awareness on the part of people I went to went to school with, and so maybe these things were sort of bubbling below the surface and they've kind of expanded out now and forced changes that probably may have made my experience more comfortable. But I, I'm i really torn personally because I'm, I'm not sure which is right or if there is a right answer to the question of whether your identity should really have a role in how you're educated. It's something I'm uncertain about.
2: Well, I, I, I agree with you. I, th- in, in my in my own mind I make a a distinction between a diagnosis that identity makes a difference we we just stumbled on the big fat evidence that it does make a difference i i entered this research problem i began this research problem kind of just exactly like you described that that uh, and what I was surprised about is that well why would kids who have exactly the same uh, Credentials and a strong background. Why wouldn't they perform as well? Why wouldn't they persist as much? What's the problem here? That's what pulled us into thinking to recognizing that identity can be a factor. The things that go with your identity uh, can be a factor, Uh, but it doesn't mean that you need to to address uh, that identity that to to fix the problem requires you know reifying identity in some way and and imagining some world that is perfectly. It is exquisitely sensitive to the nuances of your identity. I don't. I don't think that's the the point. That's why uh, in, in this more more recent piece, uh, I tried to use my own example of being under a lot of identity pressure. But over time, just learning that I oh I can do this, and I'm and that actually uh, I'm supported in doing this by the people around me, and that that had a huge effect of of mitigating these these pressures. But it, it's it's important. I I, I, I don't want to take you off your line of questioning, but this is an, an experiment that I think people often don't talk enough about, but it's really important in this line of research. Uh, we gave black and white Stanford students a, really, a set of really difficult anagrams to solve. And we told them, half of them, that, these, that solving anagrams is kind of related to, it's kind of a measure of cognitive abilities. And the other half we told, uh, well, you know, there's nothing to do with cognitive abilities. It's just a game people play and just, it isn't predictive of anything. So black and white under those conditions. Then uh, under a variety of ruses, we asked them to do more, to volunteer. How many more of these anagrams would you be willing to do for us? Well, the white kids, uh, no matter how you describe the anagrams as, as tests of cognitive ability or not tests of cognitive ability, they said two we'll do two. I'll do two. These are, these are really tough anagrams. I don't want to be here all day. I'll, I'll do two for you. And uh, for the black kids, when we uh, told them that the, the anagrams had nothing to do with cognitive abilities, it was just a game, uh, they said the same thing. We'll do two. We'll do two more for you. But the black kids who believed that the anagrams were measures of cognitive ability, how many do you think they were willing to do? Zero. 10.
1: I, yeah, I was gonna say more. We're not a measure. Okay, yeah, no, no, they were a measure. Yeah, so I, I reversed it. Yeah, I thought you were saying once you thought it was a measure. If it's not a measure, yeah, I thought more.
2: Yeah, they 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 which which reveals something kind of like what you said when you see those pictures on the wall. You want to be one of them.
0: Yeah. I mean,
2: and our families told us you gotta work twice as hard uh, in this unfair world to be to join that elite group. Uh, a lot of the stereotype threat effects. Happen because people are trying too hard, rather than because they're giving up. Giving up is rare, but trying too hard, trying too hard, overdoing it, doing two things at the same. You're trying to do the task and at the same time monitor how well you're doing the task. And it's just, it just takes up a lot of cognitive resources. It's difficult to sustain that level of of, in, of involvement, and it wears people out. And maybe they may drop out uh, or or give up that that line of uh, that pursuit. It's it's just important to it's, to understand the nature of this pressure, it, it's, it's usually driving people to, to try too
0: hard. So coming back to Corey's point, I think you mentioned this in your Chronicle article as well, that at least when we were in school, we, we were probably too young to really have experienced Jim Crow and segregation, anything like that. But, but the idea was, I think definitely the 80s were a more racist time than today, but the goal seemed to be always, everybody had in mind, a, a race-blind society as what the ultimate endpoint would look like. And so I think as older guys now, we have a little bit of whiplash because now we're being told, no, no, race-blind is not what we're after. We're after something actually even more exquisitely complex than that, where you have full recognition of someone's background and history and and things like that. So how do you think the goalpost moved? like What what ca- what caused that goalpost to move and the recognition that uh, race-blind is maybe not the best thing that you should strive for?
2: Yeah. Uh, let me introduce a term, uh, and I apologize. It's a, it's an opaque academic term, identity contingencies. And what I mean by that, though, is something very simple. It's just the things that you have to deal with in your life because you have an identity, particular identity. Because you're a woman, you're going to have to deal with things in life that are different with, than what men have to deal with. If you're poor, you're going to have to deal with things in life that... Uh, wealthy people don't have to deal with. If you're wealthy, you're going to have to deal with things in life that may be poor people, and so on. The, that's what the term identity contingencies refers to, uh, that there are just realities tied to our identities that reflect how society is organized around identity, and the history of society, and how the history's been organized around identity, and stratified, and how identity has been used for you know 400 years plus to to as a basis for allocating opportunity and for deciding who's a part of the social contract and so identity is real and the way we experience it in our own lives that there's just certain things we have to deal with so as as an african american i have to deal with the fact that people could see me in in a, in a certain way that stereotype threat so when you get me to promise to be colorblind i i i kind of don't see that All that stuff that's really part of my experience, it's tied to my identity, we've kind of held hands and agreed, well, we're not gonna see that. And it it could be that based given the identity I have, uh, my road to this level of schooling, let's say, let's say it's getting into college, my road to getting into college could have been very different than the road for somebody else getting into college. And it might have produced all kinds of experiences and feelings that are different. So if we're colorblind. Uh, Then, then we're we're kind of we're we're not adapting to some realities that uh, are out there that may make a difference in how effective our universities are, for example, or our colleges are, for uh, for example. So that's a basic point. Now, colorblindness sometimes is a standard of fairness. You know, we we want uh, uh, law enforcement to be colorblind. We want incarcerations. Uh, uh, practices and sentencing to be colorblind. We want healthcare to be colorblind. We want access to, to capital to be colorblind. So uh, I, I'm not sure we're going to get rid of that uh, as a as a general approach to how you do an integrated society. How you bring everybody into society. I'm not sure we're going to get rid of that. So to 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 put a a, a black hat on colorblindness uh, completely. I, I don't agree with that. I think there are certain things that are essential, Uh, where is it essential. But at at the point of educating people, I think we have to recognize that people uh, come from very different groups that have had very different experiences in this society and continue to have very different experiences in in this society, And, and that what those different experiences could do uh, to the experience of going to college is to make some people mistrust and have just a great deal more wariness about how they're received in that institution. They're just going to come in as a result of, you know, as a, as a black person, I, can I just completely trust that everybody around me just thinks <laughs> I'm fantastic and promising and is going to invest time in me? And I, I you know, I, I'd be blind to a lot of history, to a lot of my own identity contingencies if I, if I had that level of false consciousness. So I'm inherently a little more wary coming in, and if my university is not in any way aware of that and doesn't come to me a little bit, uh, as in those interventions, come to me, assure me that they see my potential and that they're going to treat me in a, in a way that demands the best out of me and they really invest in me, unless I see some signals like that, I'm going to be at a disadvantage and i and I, I, I might not even trust the feedback i'm getting from people i might be uh, i'm and i'm going to get with other people who are in the same boat and we're going to you know kind of focus more on well can how can we trust here and so that that's the uh, the analysis it's not to uh, sweep away color blindness but it's to it's to recognize that color blindness is is making uh, our institutions our pedagogies blind to people's reasons for being wary and mistrustful and uh uh, and worry about how they're being treated you know martin luther king has this quote toward the end of his life what he worried about in relation to integration was that our children won't be taught by people who love them i just think that cuts through a lot of it can i be assured that i'm going to be loved loved so a, a piece of pedagogy that says the way to treat students is to you know, tell them to look to their left, look to their right, and be disinterested to a kid that, that needs some signal that you, that, I don't know if, you, if it needs to be loved, but that, the, that you believe in their potential. That's a terrible pedagogy. And that's, that's a big pro- part of, 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 the, of the problem with, or the challenge in American life you know, throughout education and throughout the corporate world is, as well.
1: Claude, you're probably very well aware of um, this change that happened. I became aware of it because a recent article—I can't think of where I read it—but about the large number of black school teachers who lost their jobs after Brown. Yeah. In uh, this kind of an, un, it was really a, to me, it was a revelation. Of course, black kids have been taught by black teachers for decades before that, but when Brown came through, these black kids went to white schools. Were allowed to go to white schools, and many of them went, but. The white schools would not accept the black teachers, so a whole generation of black teachers lost their jobs through Brown versus Board, and that led to, you know, perhaps that's what Dr. King had in mind when he was making this uh, comment. It wasn't an abstract observation.
2: Absolutely, uh, it was. It was a. It was a real uh, the, the a good source, an entertaining source of this is a revisionist history podcast by Malcolm Gladwell that. Makes that, that, that maybe I heard
1: that yes that's right I think that's right that's
2: maybe where you heard yeah. it yeah it, it tells that that story which 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 is a revelation to a lot of us that uh, the in, in in desegregating American schools which by the way are not that desegregated They still are almost as segregated as they were in 1954 uh, but that the effort was to integrate the kids and not the teachers so. The kids got moved around and busted and, and the like, but uh, basically, people weren't going to let black teachers teach white kids. And so black teachers lost their jobs.
1: And I think there is now a fair amount of evidence uh, showing that a very important factor in the performance and academic success of black kids is having black teachers.
2: Yes. And I think even,
1: even one. Even one, yeah.
2: And their whole, you know, Experience in school, having one teacher turns out to make a big difference in the achievements and the outcomes for Black kids.
1: Do we know why, or what it is that teacher does, or is it, if it's merely that teacher's presence that has an effect?
2: Well, I, you know, I don't, I don't think a lot of, I, I think the research needed to unravel that in a, in any precise way has yet to be done. Uh, so we're we're at a point of noting the phenomenon, that it does have this different, this effect. But I don't think we're really clear about exactly how it happens. It could be that I just need to have an existence proof. That's one thing that Kenneth Clark meant to me as an African-American kid coming into psychology is that, well, it, it, Kenneth Clark was, a, was the only the only African-American social psychologist I'd ever heard of or that existed. So he, but it, it was powerful because, well, if he did it, maybe I could do it. And that's highly motivating. Uh, it, so I, I never met him until many, many years later, but he was he had that role, you know, of the Obama presidency. I could be a president. I could be. That's very different than living your life as I couldn't ever be the president of this country. that's a That's a lid on possibilities that I think does pe- affect people at the individual level. It could be the black teacher has that kind of an effect. It's an existence proof. It could be that, this person had some faith in my abilities or faith in my potential. That could be another way it happens.
1: My, my father reports almost exactly the same experience. I think he was considering becoming either a psychologist or a psychiatrist. He told me that he knew of a black psychologist and didn't know of any black psychiatrist, and that ended the discussion. <laughs> really? <laughs> wow.
0: That's incredible.
1: Yeah. No, it, was very, uh, wow. it was very clear in his mind.
0: Yeah, it was
2: very clear in my mind. I I didn't agree with Kenneth Clark's interpretation of the doll studies. It actually begins, gets cycles back to your opening comment about your children's experience in, in integrated schools. Um, and 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 it, I, if you're interested in a in a really great history of that whole episode, the involvement of social science in that Supreme Court decision, that the the doll studies and the role they played in that desegregation Supreme Court decision. there's a book called Contempt and Pity by Daryl Scott Daryl Scott, which which is a hard to put down uh, narrative story about what what happened there. Actually the data are closer to the experience, the actual data are closer to the experience you describe your children having where in integrated schools are, are much were, were harder on black kids but the the need to have the data support, uh, a psychological condemnation of segregation—that there's, that we wanted—they needed to get a psychological rationale for getting rid of segregation because a political rationale that it would just never have passed, never have gotten the South on board, uh, and the Supreme Court probably would have had a split decision, and maybe it never would have happened. So it was a legal strategy to make a psychological account. Uh, of what of the damage that segregation would do. Well, it leads to this low self-esteem kind of thing. Well, it actually doesn't. <laughs> but you can interpret that bowel studies are ambiguous enough that you could, you could given the pattern of data, which I don't, I don't want to bore you with right now, but given the pattern of data, you could go either way. So they all held hands, and they went the way that said segregation leads to lower self-esteem, even though they're really you could make the exact opposite interpretation of the data.
0: So Corey, the, the conversation you guys were having was before we started taping, right? So maybe you want to
1: Okay. Um so Claude, we we have to this is complicated editing. Let me a little artificially sort of retell the story um and then we're going to figure out how to edit this in because I think this is really good. So I'm not sure how to do this, but let's let's set the stage. I you know, I'm reading through your biography and I noticed that Kenneth Clark Kenneth Clark's work is pretty important to your academic development and perhaps your political development. Now I have very young kids. Uh, My daughter's five years old, my son's four, another daughter's um, two years old. And My kids are going to integrated schools. This is a long-running discussion as part of our group here, but I'm shocked by the degree of integration and tolerance and the number of interracial kids in the Midwest. I had very strong stereotypes about the Midwest before I came here. Um, But there are a surprisingly large number of interracial kids in our class, I'd say maybe a quarter of the kids are interracial, or third, and and, and my, my kids are too. And it's interesting at the time I was at Stanford in the '90s, in the '80s, um, late '80s, I was told that the largest group of minority students on campus were interracial, which shows that California is actually quite a ways ahead of the U.S. in this regard. But what I noticed with my daughter was really fascinating. There was a there's a real deep interest in skin color, and my daughter would draw herself as white. For the first couple of years of her life, she's got she's extremely talented artistically. She draws a lot, but she's drawing herself as blonde, which you know I found really kind of disturbing. Um, and my kids were really obsessed with skin color, and it's clear that she would gotten the idea that white was better. In fact, she draw the entire family, and the only person who was recently brown was me. It was just you know. <laughs> <laughs> but interestingly enough, uh, she's recently started pre K, and she's gone to. Extremely diverse school where I think most of the kids in her class are minority, and within a week, drawing herself white just stopped. Yeah, and I can't say it's causal, but it certainly does appear that her being in an environment where it appeared that her skin color was, you know, the norm and acceptable, changed it entirely. So, yeah, I, I do want to get into this a little bit. I want to have you know your thoughts on what I've described, and to hear a little bit more about Clark's work, because I'm i not an expert by any stretch of the imagination.
2: Well, I can recommend going on YouTube, and, and uh, YouTube has everything. So it actually has footage of the doll studies. And uh, they look like this, where you've got uh, a black kid, four or five years old, and there's a white doll in front of them and a black doll in front of them. And they're asked by the experimenter, oh, well, who's the nice doll? And who's the doll that people like to play with? And who's the doll that's the prettiest, and so on, right? And the black kids, in that, in answer to those questions, often point to the white doll as the prettiest, the nicest, the most popular, and so on. And then the experimenter says, "And which doll looks like you?" And then there's often a, 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 a you know, fumbling, and some emotion comes forth, and You know, the the child for the first time maybe recognizes that they have this view of what is, you know, a positive, valued, attractive person, and it's not them. And it's like a moment of confrontation. Uh, And then they point to the black dolls like them. And that's the evidence that the Supreme Court used to say uh, black kids have a low self-regard because they think they're not the thing that is good, pretty, and popular and so on. Uh now my my interpretation of what's going on is uh a little different, which is that uh they're just picking up from their environment uh the, the value structure of that that environment. Who's pretty, who's who's nice, who's and and it's co- it's color coded. You know, they're just picking that up. And the, they don't really process it very deeply. Not not at not at four or five or six. Uh, and then it's kind of go along, and it's, they so they they color yourself white or with blonde hair, and you you're not thinking about it very much. Uh, but if you are put in a world that's different, where there are black kids around, th- then then you're you, there's a whole different values scheme going on, and and what's nice and pretty and so forth is not necessarily white, but it's some variation on on African American life and, and looks and experience. So. The context is, is sort of uh, giving them this, uh, these associations. Uh, this, is the, this is the root of implicit bias, is that we grow up in a society and we just implicitly, without being aware of it, from the nightly news and from driving through communities, and we just pick up associations. Well, black people don't have a lot of money. And black people, we just pick that up. We're not even thinking about it. It's there. It doesn't mean that because I've picked up those associations that I actually think less of me, of myself, it's just that there are associations up there. If I was in a different society, uh, skin color would have a completely different meaning. It wouldn't, it wouldn't mean the same thing at all. If I was in that, if I grew up in Lagos, uh, it just wouldn't mean it, the same thing. May, maybe who comes from a rural area or an urban area, that might be a big deal in Lagos, but, but everybody's black in Lagos, so it doesn't mean anything. In America, given our history, and the way our society is still organized around race, uh, race color codes things, and, and that's just picked up. Uh, so I uh maybe, maybe, I don't know if I'm unique among psychologists, but I'm among a set of psychologists that do not interpret the doll studies as, as you know, uh, definitive evidence that black kids have low self-esteem. And that's, that's one, one of the, the impetuses for doing stereotype threat uh, research is that it didn't seem to me like black people internalized the negative stereotypes about them in, in a sense of integrating it as a view of themselves, these negative views out there. In fact, growing up in a black community, I felt people just knew you had to contend with them, that people are going to see you that way. And you just had to contend with that in some way or another. You had to deal with it uh, in some way. Or another. And that, that, that captured the reality, the impact of stereotypes, the stereotypes out there, uh, it's not necessarily something i believe and have internalized like gordon allport has argued uh, perhaps most famously it's internalized it's hammered hammered into our consciousness and and it affects our our, our a person's sense of, uh, of affects a person's integrity I, I don't know about all that maybe <laughs> maybe i just don't see that much of that <laughs> maybe in some extreme circumstances that it happens but most of the time i it it happens in situations where i know people, uh, the stereotype, the way people think about black people could affect how they treat me or what they think about me. Then I got to deal with that.
0: So th- this dichotomy that you just uh, illustrated, I mean, it does affect, in the current setting, I, I, a lot of older guys like me would say things like, hey, you know, you're going to face some, I might say this to my son or my daughter, you're going to face some racism, you might have to work harder than the other kid. And it's better that they kind of know that, and in a way that, you know, by being too nice, too um, exquisitely sensitive to people's uh, backgrounds as you're educating them. I, I feel like you're training. You might be making them overly sensitive to these issues and not as resilient as if you warn them from the get-go. Hey, some people are not going to like you because of the way you look, and you just better be ready for that. So, I, I, how do you how do you feel about that?
2: You mean it's, I'm I'm not clear on the contrast. One 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 strategy is to say, look out. It, it may be coming for you and be ready for that yep. you can handle it yep. that would be, what's the other
0: approach well the other thing is to is to say that so uh, your the kid is likely to internalize rather than just realize society is structured in a certain way that might be disadvantageous yes. to them and, and maybe learn to react to it the the fear would be that they internalize that as a notion of lesser self-worth uh, as a yeah. and and but if you're really worried about the second thing, you might not make the kid sufficiently resilient to deal with uh, the challenges uh, that they're gonna, they're ine- inevitably maybe gonna face in that society.
2: Yeah, I, I think I, I agree with you. I, I think uh, I, I call this called it sort of to myself at any rate. So sort of the art of of parenting as a as a minority. Uh, how 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 do you tell how do you prepare your kid to deal with a world that may be prejudiced against them and you know has stereotypes about them. Yep how do you prepare the kid for, for that? And I, there's art to it. You can't go to the extreme of saying behind every rock, there is a racist. And that's just what everything that happens to you comes from that. That would be so weighty and onerous that who could survive that. And you can't go to the other end of the continuum, the false consciousness end, where no, we're in a post-racial world. It's all over. <laughs> Everything's cool. You're never going to, you know, those, those shootings on television. I don't know what they mean, but ignore that. <laughs> I mean, so you you have to uh, uh, help a child understand the the reality. I, I, I think of, of my parents uh, uh, being especially good at that. There was, it was just a lot of talk that uh, that gave us a sophisticated approach to the the realities of my contingencies, my identity contingencies. That I remember mean, my, my father was very straightforward about things like. Look, the world don't have to be perfect for you to get get and keep a job, man. That 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 would So he's acknowledging that the world is not perfect, but he's at the same time saying uh, you you got to get a job and it's hard for a black kid to get a job and keep a job certainly in my day. And you got but you got to do it. You're up to it. I believe you can do it. So there was a lot in that in that kind of message that prepared me for the realities and, and enabled me to persist when I was in that situation. Like in, I think it, it you know, uh, he was a truck driver. He didn't have any education at all. Uh, his father was a slave. But the, the advice he gave me like that helped me get tenure as an academic. It, it doesn't have to be a perfect world. Uh, yeah, there is, there is racism in it. And there are stereotypes. And with that frame, it, it, I certainly didn't internalize it. I, I saw myself as a warrior against it. <laughs> and uh, you could use it as a mobilizing, energy mobilizing thing. I, I, do, I do think uh, it probably led to some underperformances here and there because of, of maybe getting me to try too hard to beat that stereotype and just whistle Vivaldi and just prove <laughs> the stereotype and uh, all that goes on. Uh, but uh, as, a, as a piece of parental advice in this situation, I, 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 I'm grateful for it. I thought there was wisdom in it. And I think it's broadly shared.
1: It's interesting. I'm listening to the subtleties of what your father said to you because I find it very challenging these days because the world is clearly changing rapidly. And you know, I've got to assume that my experience is not what my kids are gonna experience, because the world's moved fifty years uh maybe you know, I had my kids late, but forty years hence. So it's interesting your father actually didn't say anything about it seems like he gave you fairly general advice that could apply across eras. Um, I think some parents are inclined to interpret the world for their kids through their own experience. And that's something that I've been very reticent to do because I've noticed that I experienced a lot more racial difficulty growing up than my daughter seems to be experiencing. You know, I remember being very clearly having kid ask me why you're so brown. And I think I made up something <laughs> like I got left in the toaster too long. I was like three, you know. <laughs> Um, it's possible someone said something like that to her recently, but I'm, I don't get that impression. I think there's much more comfort, even in the Midwest here, which I wouldn't have expected with uh, different racial groups. So I, I see that the, the challenge being to try to talk to your kids in a way that doesn't make too many presumptions about a world with which I'm not very familiar, actually, because I don't know what kids at that age think, and I assume they're more tolerant but I don't know what the issues are. I do know that, that skin color matters to them because they've zeroed in on it. And I think i, I think I made a what, I'm honestly not sure about this decision. I'd like to hear your reaction. I, I made a decision when I found my kids talking about skin color with a very dark skinned black girl. And they started pointing out that, my daughter pointed out to her that that she was darker than my daughter was, and that she was sort of similar to my color. And it's made this very dark skin black very uncomfortable. It was really, really apparent to me. And when we got home, I basically told my daughter, "No more talking about this," um, because it was obvious it was going to affect some people really negatively. And I'm just—I wasn't sure. I, I hope we can open the conversation, you know, with my daughter a little further hence. But it, it was something that made me uncomfortable, I guess. So I guess there are a couple of questions in there about how specifically to address uh, a changing world, but also. What you do when you figure out this kind of conversation may affect people pretty
0: vulnerable
2: yeah, uh, I generally err in the direction of finding a way to have the conversation as opposed to not have it uh, because I suspect there's risk of making a mistake, but I think kids can understand a lot and they're going through a lot and and they I think they can benefit from having a constructive frame about things that that Calms them, desensitizes them a little bit to to the to the issue. So, d- just as a general principle, uh, and, and I think parents want to get in there and control the narrative <laughs> to some degree, uh, as opposed to let uh, society control the, the 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 narrative. And I I think you know, like a conversation with your daughter about why that uh, her remark to her darker-skinned friend might be hurtful, uh, a, a conversation uh, about that might be useful. That in that would come a sort of understanding of of um, other people's feelings, just of just the raw capacity to take other people's feelings into consideration, and then the particular issue of skin color and the uh, role it's played in American life. You know, you don't need to go into a lot of detail. It doesn't have to be an academic discourse, but it it can be informative. It and I, I guess to sh- what to shoot for is something that's kind of informative but diffuses the uh, and that normalizes these things a little bit and and puts them in a positive light.
0: I'm curious. Did your daughter immediately understand what the issue was, or was it she just like, Dad, what are you talking about? Why why would she be sensitive about that?
1: No, she grasped it immediately. Okay, that yeah. was the striking thing. That makes me makes me sympathetic to Claude's idea. You know, I I appear to be a sensitive kind of thoughtful academic, but deep down, I'm a guy who just doesn't like to talk about a lot of stuff. And so, <laughs> I, I realized I have to check this inclination and be more emotive. No, the whole I don't want to hijack this podcast with like discussion with my kids, but it's been a really fascinating experience to see how how this really how they how much they think about this stuff. So my my son is fairly light skinned. My son is one of these people who could be from anywhere. Like one of our colleagues says he kind of looks like a Uyghur. He looks a little bit Asian. He's got this kind of curly locks of hair. When his hair is short, he could be Southern Italian, um, does not look very black. And at some point in time, we're talking about the sun and tanning and the effect the sun has on you. And uh, I said, Well, what happens when you're in the sun? You're going to get darker because you're going to get more tan. And I said this maybe six months ago. And then he starts saying uh, to me, uh, asking questions, When's it going to be winter? When's it going to be cloudy? And I'm like, Well, winter comes in December 22nd. Why are you asking? So he says, "Well, I want it to be winter and cloudy, so I don't get any darker." And this is a conversation this kid had, like, stored for six months. Wow, retained and reasoned about. And you know, I, I realize I, I I do need to have a conversation with him about this, but it's a complicated conversation. Uh, and ask him why he feels this way. And I, I, he's probably a lot um, less kind of emotionally aware than my daughter He's a little bit younger. But it's a, it's an issue that I didn't expect to confront. And that may. Be one of the most surprising things about parenting a minority kid. Well, you know, when,
2: when I when I hear that story, I think uh, uh, my kids have had that experience too. So I, I think it's first a reflection of the world that they're in. They're they're going to integrated schools where there are a lot of white kids, and the and and they're probably in the minority. Extracting a lot from the story, it's and you can all, it's all correct. Me. Yeah. And and uh, so again, it's it's that that majority is setting all the standards for beauty and niceness and style, and and they're they're uh, in in the in the minority. Uh, they want to belong in that world that, that, that they're in, and so they're, they're that kind of structures a, a disadvantage around skin color in that situation. And I think an important um, thing a parent can do is expose them to an environment where skin color has a different meaning where, where maybe it's cool to be black uh, or it's, you know, it's, we, we all, I, throughout my life, I've sought those kinds of situations. I deeply involved as a, as a consumer of jazz, uh, especially growing up and into adulthood, because that's where black people were so brilliant. So obviously brilliant and, and the sensibilities of the African American experience were so beautiful that in that context, skin color is cool. And it's 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 may, may be helpful for, for kids to see that because they're contending with this. I just think a structural situation of, of and, and and again uh, that 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 essay I, I'm ch- I'm trying to get at some of the challenges of integration. Just that we don't want to think about And that colorblind notion. I, I bet your your children's teacher just is saying, well, you know, we work, I don't have to respond to your race. It's it, I don't I don't see color. I don't see color. (laughs) The whole room is structured around color because the whole society and the whole history of the society has been constructed around color. So the kids, they, they, they see it (laughs) and they experience it, how much they process it and, and internalize who knows that's, that's murky waters, but, but, but they're, they're just reflecting the structure of American society and, and, and their, and their perceived role in it. And, Maybe it's cooler to be a little lighter here than it is to be darker. So, uh, so, so I th- I think it's helpful to to go broad and see the Obamas and to see the you know even sports uh, as another great area. But areas of life where where skin color is is uh, a, 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 at least not a negative thing.
1: I was recently in Nigeria um, just this past summer, and my son's been intensely interested. In traveling where I travel, and I of course I, I told them we're going to go to these places someday. But your comments make me think I'm probably going to take him there sooner rather than later, um, just yeah. to put him in a very different environment.
2: Yeah, it might really change him for because uh, he's going to see some things which will uh, lead him to understand his life differently. Yeah, Mike. And, and
0: oh, sorry, my 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 kids have spent a fair amount of time in Asia, and so they they at least have seen worlds where everybody looks like them and. You know that's fine, but the thing is, like, uh, I don't think they really like to go to Asia. They they somehow like America much better than Asia, so it didn't fully work with them. But it, but at least they've seen something that uh, probably shifted them at some psychological level.
2: Yeah, there there are a lot of reasons to you know to like or dislike a place. Yeah. You know, aside from that, but but like like with with Nigeria. There are a lot of reasons, you know, that your kids may not like that. They're going to miss some of the things they really love to do. They're going to, you know, they're going to, you know, getting on socially is going to be a challenge. So there are some things like that, but they will see a different world, and that that probably will lead to uh, a different framing of their experience.
1: You know, I was um I was talking to a woman from Ethiopia recently, and uh, she really made me aware that it's pretty heterogeneous in Africa how much people are obsessed with skin color. So she was saying that in Ethiopia, uh, there's massive color bias. And in fact, the term for darker skinned people in Ethiopia is the same as the term for slave. And so one of her real foci uh, in her research was trying to get people to overcome this kind of colorism. Um, But again, I saw much less of it in Nigeria, perhaps because there's just less variance in color. And you tend to find this kind of Interest where there's the most uh, largest range of colors within a country. So my uncle actually does a fair amount of research on this, and he says you found the least. He found the least amount of um, colorism in rural Africa, and at the time this was uh, quite in the late 70s. Actually, Afghanistan he found none, but where you did tend to encounter integration of different kinds, especially with skin color, then people became obsessed by it. So it is just to back up your point, One of these. Unforeseen consequences of integration. I think we've seen a bunch over the years. We've seen economic effects it has on uh, Black communities. You've seen the educational and economic opportunities it affords people. But I think what we're seeing now is some of the consequences people perhaps didn't notice uh, initially. Yeah. in this great experiment. Yeah.
2: Exactly. That, that's a great, great term for it. This great experiment. I mean, American society as an integrated society where everybody—you know—immigrants, Muslims, Black people uh, OBGDQ, handicap, everybody has, uh, we have a a public commitment to everybody having equal access to opportunity, uh, in a, in a a society like that. Most societies have not, if maybe not all societies have not responded to diversity like that. It's like one group conquers the other group and that's that, (laughs) uh, separate but equal, buddy. That's, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> That's the way we used to do it uh, No pretense that you're going to be equal You know, really, or maybe a pretense you're going to be equal But no opportunity to really be equal But it, the, as a fruit of the civil rights movement We are publicly committed to this I remember going to, going to uh, Paris As a young, younger adult And uh, just being knocked over By uh, the fact that people just didn't seem to respond to my race In the same way They, they just didn't, it wasn't an issue uh, uh, for them. But as I got more and more familiar with French society, I realized I probably couldn't be. I don't know if it's still that way. I'm not sure I could be a professor there or a, an elected official or, you know, they haven't had a civil rights movement. And Britain hasn't had a civil rights movement. We have. And so we're we're launched on this on this ideal. And it, it, it's, it's in our DNA. It comes from the old world mixing with the new world on, in this, on this continent, but that, that we are trying to have a, an identity-integrated society in, in which everybody can contribute from the standpoint of their in, in, in identities but but not be disadvantaged by their identities. That's sort of what we're trying to accomplish here, you know, in a sense.
1: France has actually been a pretty big topic of conversation for us. I spent a lot of time there um, when I was younger. And uh, we've talked about one of the main influences in my life was my father's graduate school roommate, who graduated uh, with a physics degree from Minnesota in 64 and couldn't get a job in the States and moved to Paris and lived there until uh, 2010 when he died. But um, many black Americans went to Paris in the 50s and 60s and virtually all came back except this guy Tanny Stovall, who was there for almost fifty years. Uh, he's a fascinating character, and I spent many, many weeks walking Paris streets with Stovall, and having him give me his incredibly detailed take on French society. You're exactly right. Paris is extremely integrated on the streets, my, yeah. and my father describes exactly the experiment experience you had, which is one time he's walking at night down. On a pair of he's there visiting Stovall, and a group of teenagers are coming towards him, white teenagers, and he tenses up. And he's got close, the teenagers just parted, just walked right past him as if, you know, they, it, just, it just didn't matter. And he was just struck by this. But Stovall and I would sit down, Stovall would point out to me the segments of society, this was in the uh, 80s and 90s, that blacks uh, could not, had not, and probably could not uh, penetrate. You couldn't be a black waiter. At the time, blacks did not work in the post office. Blacks were not on television. There are no black elected officials, and it was uh, and this kind of uh, difficulty still challenges black people in Paris and and Arabs in Paris and many other immigrants. There's a sense of egalite, fraternite, but in fact, many segments of French society are just just blocked off from people. And you know, I, I have after Obama. If the rise of Obama, I'd have discussions with my European friends about this and they'd talk about well, we don't have the racism you have in the States. And I'm like, <laughs> Obama would <laughs> never fucking happen in your country. And you know, it would never happen to France or any place else like this. And so I think you're exactly right that's this great experiment. I don't know if you're familiar with this Chinese uh, kid recently who um he joined the military. He was a Chinese national, joined the American military and became kind of a cause celeb because Somehow they screwed up and they're getting ready to deport the kid. And of course, having joined the American military is somewhat of a disadvantage if you're going to be sent back to China. But the kid loved the American experiment. He just loved the idea of integration and equality, all these different groups, and led him to do something pretty radical. And eventually, just before you know they're forcing him to get on a plane, they came and they regularized his status. But he's a guy who really realized that there is this real unique feature of American uh, society. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm going like to work on that. That's what I think of, of in terms of my intellectual future at any rate is, is focusing on this, on the realities of integration and what the challenges are and what, what's going to be required to make it work. Cause I, I, I don't think we, we're, we're, we're kind of lost. In fact, I, I have to run because I'm talking to uh, Clay Carson who is an African-American historian here at Stanford and has done a, uh, maybe the definitive history of a lot of the civil rights uh, leaders are certainly Martin Luther King. He's in charge of the Martin Luther King papers. And, and, but I'm, I'm talking to him about the history of SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, because it's an interesting story of uh, I- I- exactly these, these processes. It began with the notion of a beloved community, of respect for each other, kind of in a, in a framework of the politics of respectability, And in a period of uh, in a decade, it became Black Power, Black nationalism. Whites got kicked out of the movement. Uh, It was it got it it, it became violent. Uh, You had to get guns and the Black Panthers and so I'm really interested in in that history because it reflects such an important uh, such a rich reaction to to this American experiment and and I think there are lessons in it that. Our institutions today can extract from that transition to help us figure out what what, what can work and what can't work. But the the basic question is, well how the hell do you integrate a society like this? Where people, we come together but we've got very different histories and you've always treated my people in a certain way. Can I trust you now? You're giving me feedback on this essay, but can I trust that? Could that be coming from my essay or from how you guys see my group? And it just like gets right down into the molecular's of the, the you know the sort of granular level of experience. So, I, I just I think it's a much richer uh, and important experiment we're we're in than we realize.
1: Well, thank you, Claude, for your time. This has been a really, uh, really interesting discussion.
0: Yeah, I really enjoyed your remarks, and uh, I I find that you're refreshingly optimistic about the future of uh, race relations in America. I mean. So many people are down on it right now. It's it's really great to hear your thoughts about it.
2: Yeah, we're I we're, we're I I believe we're with each other in this society. You know, nobody's going anywhere.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully, <laughs> so we got to
2: we got to make it work. And I and I believe in many of our lives there there are so many instances where it does work. Our relationships, you know, uh, marriages, it works all over the place. So so I, th- I think I think the big challenge is to get our uh, our institutions better uh, in, informed and and designed so as to uh, meet the challenges and and really move us forward. That there, I don't think we've made adequate progress, and I, I say that as somebody who's who's been uh, responsible for the culture of certain in several institutions <laughs> and disappointed at the at the at what we were able to do. So that's where I think the challenge is.
1: Well, hopefully you'll be willing to come back and talk to us about the Stick Project as it develops, because I would love to hear more.
2: Yeah, I, I'd be delighted to do that. That'd be delightful. As soon as I get a hold, I've read everything now, and now Clay is going to give me a, a, a simple narrative through this <laughs> this morass. Yeah. But but it, it, I, I recommend the book. It's called "The Struggle," and the author is Clayburn uh, Carson. And it is, it's a story many of us, I, I lived through it, but I think most people have forgotten it. And, and it's an extremely poignant uh, story of uh, people, you know, Freedom Riders sit-ins, Freedom Summers, uh, transmogrifying over a small number of years into the Black Panthers and shootouts with the police and, and expatriated leaders and sort of the death of the, of the movement. So it's, it's, it's like a movie. And and what what happened in that transition is uh, so interesting with regard to uh, all these questions that we've been uh, talking about. So I promise I'll come back and <laughs> and give you my story, my interpretation.
1: And I'll definitely get the book. Thanks again, Claude.
2: Great. Thank you, guys. Thanks guys. a lot.
1: Appreciate it.